1: Libertarians in green groups, grocers, and ranchers form an unlikely alliance, finding a common enemy in corn ethanol.
2: There's something to be said when you can have friends the earth in the Cato Institute both briefing congress together in the same room and saying yeah corn ethanol subsidies need to
1: go critics say our tax dollars are subsidizing ethanol exports to oil producing nations including canada and saudi arabia also we leaf through one of the biggest books ever printed it's a double elephant folio but it's strictly for the birds
3: one of the most popular audubon plates is the wild turkey in life size it fills the entire leaf pretty much within about a half
1: an inch or a quarter of an inch to the edge. Big birds around turkey time. These stories and more just ahead on Living on Earth. Stay with us.
0: Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm.
1: From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Somerville, Massachusetts, this is Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. With its Turkey Day break over, Congress returns to the lame duck session with corn on the menu. A multi-billion dollar tax break for corn-based ethanol will expire at the end of this year unless Congress acts to extend it. That's brought together an unlikely alliance working to end government support for what they call a wasteful and
0: environmentally harmful fuel. Living on Earth's Jeff Young reports. They say politics makes strange bedfellows. Consider the scene at one recent congressional briefing on corn ethanol subsidies. A pro-business think tank and an environmental group often at each other's throats found they had something in common.
2: There's something to be said when you can have Friends of the Earth and the Cato Institute both briefing Congress together in the same room and saying, yeah, corn ethanol subsidies need to go.
0: Friends of the Earth ethanol campaign leader Kate McMahon says her group dislikes the polluted runoff from fertilizer and pesticides used to grow corn for ethanol. And she points to studies showing ethanol's production generates more greenhouse gases than you'd get from burning gasoline.
2: We have this idea in our head that corn ethanol is good for the environment and good for climate. But, you know, when you actually look at the numbers, that's just not the case.
0: The Cato Institute says ethanol subsidies distort markets. Associations for grocers and ranchers think ethanol pushes up corn prices, hurting their business. And anti-poverty groups say higher food prices hurt the world's hungry. All are working in some way to end ethanol's so-called blender's tax credit which gives 45 cents a gallon for fuel blended with ethanol. That adds up to about $6 billion a year. The credit's been around for decades, but Steve Ellis of the budget watchdog group Taxpayers for Common Sense says he and other ethanol opponents have another powerful ally, a newly austere environment in Congress that makes finding offsets in the budget much harder.
4: Well, the deck is a little bit stacked against the corn lobby, and the challenge is when they passed pay-as-you-go reforms, pay-go reforms, to spend more money on this tax credit, they have to find offsets, and offsets are hard to come by. So when it was perceived to be free by Congress, even though it cost us a lot of money, it went through. But now the fact that you have to pay the piper, there isn't a lot of interest.
0: That has people like Tom Bias racing against time as the congressional calendar ticks down. He's head of Growth Energy, an ethanol industry lobbying group. Bias says Congress should support the industry because it's the only fuel alternative ready to reduce dependence on imported oil. Today's
5: ethanol production is 10 percent, roughly 10 percent of our entire gasoline usage in the United States, which is not insignificant at all. And if you look at any other alternative fuels, there are none. And we've waited around on this for far too long. It's a national security. It's an energy security. It's a U.S. job security issue. And it's an environmental issue.
0: But Bias's argument about ethanol as a homegrown alternative to oil imports was undermined somewhat by news that the U.S. is now selling some ethanol abroad. Gregory Meyer at the Financial Times reported on a small but growing amount of U.S. ethanol exports.
6: It is a bit of an odd turn of events that we are now exporting some of this ethanol um, everywhere from Canada to the Netherlands to uh, the United Arab Emirates.
0: The exports aren't much by volume, but it's enough to anger European biofuels companies. They say the U.S. businesses benefit from the blender's tax credit, then use a loophole in EU tariff law to send their subsidized product overseas. But Meyer says the underlying issue is that the U.S. has a glut of ethanol on the market and policy that prevents greater domestic use.
6: The U.S. has kind of a a biofuels policy that is at odds with itself. Uh, On the one hand, the law requires companies to blend 12 billion gallons of ethanol. Uh, But at the same time, there's a cap on how much ethanol you can blend into each gallon of gas.
0: In the ethanol industry, this is known as the blending wall. There's a law that says use the stuff, but EPA rules say only use 10 percent or E10 in any given gallon. A higher mixture might damage older engines. The EPA is looking into whether E-15 fuel is okay for older vehicles. That decision's expected early next year. Tom Bias at Growth Energy realizes his industry is in a corn version of a catch-22. With the tax credit in trouble, he's floated an idea for a different kind of government help to break down the blending wall. Support for flex fuel vehicles that can handle higher ethanol blends and service station pumps called blender pumps that can deliver it. In
5: a blender pump allows the consumer to choose the blend of ethanol that they want in with their fuel. The second part of it is the increased production of flex-fuel vehicles in America, and that way a flex-fuel vehicle can burn any blend that you want from E0 to E85. So you put the power in the hands of the consumer.
0: Bias says this will reduce the industry's reliance on tax credits and create more demand for ethanol made from cellulose rather than corn. Cellulosic ethanol, made from wood chips, crop waste, or grass, has a better environmental profile, but it's still too costly. Ethanol opponents remain skeptical, but if the tax credit expires in December, you can be sure the new Congress will get an earful about these ethanol ideas come January. For Living on Earth, I'm Jeff Young.
1: subsidize ethanol to something completely different. It's party time at Living on Earth.
7: I'm completely blown away by the turnout
1: number of people that have shown up. Take out your glitter makeup, your acid wash denims, and don't forget your wallet. This ain't no disco. This ain't no fooling around. This is a carrot mob. A carrot mob is a way for environmental activists to capitalize on capitalism, using the power of their purse to persuade businesses to go green. For example, getting a liquor store to put in energy-saving light bulbs.
4: CFLs and bourbon together at last. It's about time, right? Somebody had to do it.
1: That somebody is Brent Shulkin, founder of Carrot Mob. Forget sticks and protests to get companies to do the environmentally right thing, Shulkin says. Why not reward businesses with a carrot mob? A couple years
7: ago, I was in San Francisco and I got on my bike and rode around my neighborhood to 23 convenience stores. And at every store, I went in and I said, What I'm going to do is bring hundreds of people to one store on one day and we're just going to spend a ton of money. And so what I asked was, what percentage of this revenue we would bring will you set aside and reinvest in energy inf- efficiency upgrades to your store? Finally, one store said, I'll give you 22% of everything you guys would spend. So then I turned around and I went to the community, you know, put up some flyers and spread the word on the Internet and said, everyone come down. And then on this, the day of the carrot mob, hundreds of people showed up at this convenience store. There was a line around the block when it was all over. You know, their their typical daily revenues, maybe $1,800, a little more than that on the weekend. We brought in $9,200 in just a couple hours. And in exchange, they took a big chunk of that money and did a full lighting retrofit of their store to be more energy efficient. So who organizes a, a carrot mob? Well... What happened after that first campaign was this video spread like crazy, and we just started getting emails from people around the world who said, hey, I saw what you did in San Francisco. That was great. Can we do it? Will you support us? So now we've grown to a global network of people, and we've seen organizers in Helsinki who organize a mob of a nightclub. Bubble tea stand in Singapore and Thailand. We've seen a school that banned plastic bags at a grocery store and and all across the U.S. And, and the biggest countries are actually Germany and Finland. They are just nuts for carrot mob. I
1: guess you call it a, not a boycott, but a boycott.
7: Yeah, I mean, carrot mob is basically the opposite of a boycott. You know, in a boycott, you say, all right, we are not going to spend any money at this business until you change. But a carrot mob, you say, we're going to ask all of you businesses to compete and say, who is willing to do the most uh, socially responsible thing, whatever we ask? And whoever wins, we're all going to come and spend money. We're going to mob you with spending. How do you ensure that the company or the
1: business that says it's going to do something socially beneficial actually does something?
7: I used to worry about that. I thought it was sort of the Achilles heel of this uh, movement. I don't anymore. And the reason is that almost all of these businesses are in it, some are in it for the cash, but a lot of them are in it for the reputation, the long-term value of being seen as sort of this great business in the community. And if you're in it for the reputation, you you know how harmful it would be if you then said, ha just kidding, we didn't follow through, suckas, <laughs> we just haven't had any problems. And we've now had 112 or so campaigns, and there's never been a problem with it. So I, I don't worry about it anymore.
1: So you've had over 100 carat mob uh, campaigns. Any quantification of the results?
7: Well, yeah, most of the campaigns so far have been focused on energy efficiency. The best estimate we have is that I think we've saved around 18 million kilowatt hours of electricity. Uh, But, you know, this is not our own exact data. This is sort of just some projections we have. So uh, as we raise money, we're going to be building out some better tools for measuring our impact.
1: Does this work um, principally with small stores or could you use it for big box stores as well?
7: Ah, well, you're you're barking up the right tree. So we want to make an enormous network of people. You know, I'm not going to be satisfied with a million people. I want, you know, 5, 10, 20, 50 million people. The reason is that if you can get that many people in this network, you could do Coke versus Pepsi, you know, Nike versus Reebok. You can start retrofitting and changing policies at some of the, the world's most powerful companies,
1: Actually, I can see this uh, being a lot of fun. You have these mobs swarming to a, a store and it turning into, you know, really kind of a pleasant community activity.
7: Yeah, and, you know, one other sort of fun idea that I, that is... I've been mulling is, imagine Super Bowl 2014 comes along, and all across America we're having these big Super Bowl parties, as Americans do, and what if we said, okay, we're all going to buy either Miller Lite, Coors Light, or Bud Light for our Super Bowl parties, which is going to be a whole lot of beer. Which of those companies is willing to have a, a wind-powered brewery? Or, you know, maybe it's, maybe it's a, a new maternity leave policy. We could ask for anything. And so, you know, that's the type of campaign. I mean, how fun would that be? Who wouldn't join in on that, on that sort of campaign? And, and that's, you know, I think there's such a broad appeal to this movement. It's so easy to get involved that I hope that we can have everyone join the network and we can grow to the point where those things are possible.
1: Well, Brent, thank you very
7: much. It's fascinating. Well, thanks, Bruce. I'm glad I was able to, to spread the word a little bit.
1: Brent Shulkin is founder of Carrot Mob. To find out more, visit our website, LOE.org. Just ahead, the Navajo Nation turns from Mother Earth to farther sky in search of energy. Keep listening to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Kellerman. (laughs) The tune may sound familiar, but the words may sound
8: strange.
1: This is Radmila Cody singing God Bless America in her native language,
8: Navajo.
1: The Navajo Nation is the largest tribe in the United States in terms of geography and population, and on November 2nd, Navajos voted for their president— The winner was Ben Shelley, the current vice president. Here's a clip of Shelley during a presidential debate.
4: We want your help to build this nation, to be competitive in the world. We're a sovereign government, for Christ's sake. Why can't we do things for ourselves and be who we're supposed to be, a great Navajo nation?
1: The Navajo Nation president-elect Ben Shelley will lead is resource-rich and dirt-poor. Half the population is unemployed. Navajo land is huge, spreading out over four states where Arizona, Utah, New Mexico, and Colorado meet. It sits on vast reserves of coal. Unfortunately, the coals buried deep under the high desert. But Shelley says coals where the future of the Navajo Nation. Lies
4: coal is our major resource right now, and two hundred two hundred years of coals that we have. And so it's, we're not going to do away well with the coal. I'm sure we can use it. Can with the environmentalists. Within the law, we can use that coal safely and, and also make money and create jobs.
1: I mean, your coal is expensive even relative to Wyoming, where they just scoop it out in open mines. Yours is pretty expensive.
4: Yeah, it is, but uh, (laughs) that's what we have, but we had to deal with it. It's just because it's expensive doesn't mean that we're not going to use it. We're going to use it, so how to use it for our benefit? Mm -hmm. We also need to realize that we also had to uh, deal with the environment and how to use that safely so that we get support from all of the greenhouse people, environmentalists, and all that. So you don't want to fight them, you know, so we always say take care of Mother Earth, and that's what we do.
1: Coal provides the Navajo with a third of the tribe's income and hundreds of jobs. But these days, it's becoming increasingly difficult for the Navajo to dig their coal and burn it in power plants located on the reservation. The U.S. Environmental Protection Agency and federal courts have been restricting the mining and use of Navajo coal. One of the coal-fired power plants on the reservation is among the most polluting in the country, sending smog over the Grand Canyon. So now President-elect Shelley says the Navajo are looking towards Father Sky.
4: We can put uh, solar panel anywhere on the reservation. It's area. This is uh, this is a God-given country that God gave us, and and we can use that sun and make money off it and make electricity. You know, coal will go away, and uh, uh, it gets, you know, mined out, and it's gone. But sun will always be there until God decides the world will shut in. So uh, that's going to be forever.
1: Can you replace coal with solar?
4: I don't know how large it's going to be. We're pioneering renewable energy. It's there, but how much energy can it create? Is renewable energy enough to supply the whole world? So I still think that we're still going to need some sort of a power plant to meet the demand of the population on energy. And uh, the other thing that we're thinking about, building as many renewable energies as we can, also manufacturing all those parts yourself, and also selling renewable energy to states. As you know, that there's 15% now being called out to every state. It's a mandate that they had to use some sort of alternative energy, and some states don't have these... Uh, uh, alternative energy, in that's where we will sell our energy to.
1: Despite Shelley's optimism, renewable energy on the reservation is still pie in the sky. Coal sustains the nation, but even within the tribe, its continued use is controversial. USM,
0: you can't hide. US data in 2008,
1: Navajo demonstrators gathered in Denver protesting the reopening of the Black Mesa coal mine. We-
0: Hopi tribal members have come to Denver to meet with the Western Regional Office of Surface Mining to express...
1: Protesters prevailed. Concerns. Black our Mesa was shut down. Closed. And a federal judge would later prevent another coal mine from expanding, ruling that it would harm an ancient tribal burial site. But Navajo President-elect Ben Shelley says the decision cost the tribe 400 jobs, and the federal government should keep its laws off Navajo land.
4: I know that the federal law does cover us in certain areas. This first time I ever heard the federal judge dealing with a coal, talking about sacred sites. And, you know, as you know, we have sacred sites like San Francisco Peak. Where's that judge at? I'd like to see him come in and help us out over there because we've been crying about sacred sites over there. And what did they do? They approved it for ski resort. So tell me what. Tell me so. Tell me what. What's going on here? You know. The Indian tribe, like the Navajo Nation, are educated enough to run their own nation. And I still think there's some people out there trying to keep us tied down so that you, you as a taxpayer, you need to, I think you're getting a little tired of feeding us, you know. So so I resp- I, thank, I thank all the taxpayers for supporting us this long and let's, let's run our own nation and let's run our own resource and help us along as we go along. Yeah, I'm getting a little bit emotional here. The Navajo Nation is ready to go on its own.
1: That's Ben Shelley. He takes office as the next president of the Navajo Nation in early January. a noble gas, and much more than the stuff that sends Spongebob skyward at the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. It also keeps MRI magnets cool and cleans rocket engines. Helium is also very common. After hydrogen, it's the second most abundant element in the universe. Here on Earth, though, supplies are running low. Living on Earth's Emily Garen has the story.
2: Hi. Oh, that's really good. You got sucked down. Oh my god. <laughs> Employee like Amy like Richards ice. and I One are bit. the only ones in the Party Plus store in Biddeford, Maine. We're taking turns sucking on helium from yellow balloons. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. I offered to pay Amy for them, but she says not to worry about it. Helium is cheap. A Party Plus balloon only costs 90 cents. And that, says Nobel Prize-winning Cornell physicist Robert Richardson, is the problem.
9: Birthday party consumption of helium is probably only uh, 5 percent, but it's more symptomatic of the waste.
2: Helium has always been so cheap that it doesn't make economic sense to recycle it. Researchers let the gas escape after using it in their low-temperature physics experiments. After the Thanksgiving Day parade, the huge balloons are just deflated. And after using the gas to clean rocket engines...
9: NASA vents the uh, helium to the atmosphere, and that's a form of squandering.
2: Dr. Richardson says up until now, that waste hasn't been a problem. There's always been enough helium to go around, but that's no longer the case. In fact, the world supply of readily available helium is running out.
10: Helium comes from the decay of radioactive material in the crust of the Earth, and it's very light, of course, so it escapes.
2: Dr. Chip Grote, a geoscience professor at the University of Texas, Austin.
10: In some cases, it gets trapped up in natural gas, methane, and it accumulates with that methane when it accumulates.
2: One of the most helium-rich natural gas deposits in the world lies beneath the southern Great Plains. And there, just outside Amarillo, Texas, is the Federal Helium Reserve, an underground helium storage area managed by the U.S. government. The reserve was created back in the 1920s, when helium-filled airships looked like one of the military vehicles of the future. But then came the Hindenburg disaster.
5: It's a terrific crash, ladies and gentlemen. It's smoking flames now, and the flame is rising to the ground. All the humanity and all the passengers screaming around it.
2: The Hindenburg exploded because it was full of flammable hydrogen, not helium, Still, after the disaster, airships, whatever they were filled with, fell out of favor. But Dr. Grote says helium found a new niche.
10: The use of it in welding, the development of MRIs, the required helium, and then a lot of pretty important low-temperature physics research that was of strategic importance to the United States also uses a lot of helium. So the feeling was still that we needed a reserve of helium, but for different purposes.
2: But according to Dr. Richardson, by the 1990s, the Fed saw things differently.
10: The
9: argument was that the Cold War was finished and the federal government had no business competing with a private industry.
2: Also, the helium program had cost the taxpayer $1.4 billion. The government wanted that money back. So in 1996, Congress passed the Helium Privatization Act, which planned to sell off all the helium in the reserve by 2015. In the meantime, the world changed. China and other industrializing countries in Asia started gobbling up helium, demanding more and more to produce LCD screens and fiber optics. And suddenly, scientists in the U.S. started having a hard time getting a hold of helium. Again, Dr. Grote.
10: Frankly, the group that became the most alarmed was the research community that used his helium and found that it couldn't afford it anymore, and in some places it couldn't even get it anymore because it was being competed for by commercial people who could pay more
2: money. Even though helium is the second most abundant element in the universe, it's expensive to strip it out of natural gas deposits. Other countries have helium.
9: Russia or Qatar or Algeria.
2: But Dr. Richardson says they're not refining it yet. He thinks they're holding out for economic reasons.
9: They are anxious for the United States to run out of helium because the price of helium will just skyrocket.
2: So the world isn't running out of helium. But by selling off the Federal Helium Reserve, the U.S. runs the risk of depending on unknown or unfriendly sources for this essential element, says Dr. Grote.
10: Getting information about market prices and supplies in other parts of the world has been extremely difficult. I would be very surprised if we're running out. I think we just haven't found and and developed the resources that are out there.
2: In the meantime, there are some substitutes for helium. Argon can be used for welding. And there are ways to recycle helium instead of just venting it into the atmosphere. And that could become more popular after the US Reserve runs out. But until other countries start producing, everything that uses helium MRIs, TV screens, even balloons will likely become more expensive. So talk like one of the chipmunks while it's still cheap. (laughs) For Living on Earth, this is Emily Guerin.
1: John James Audubon's book, Birds of America, had a transforming effect on the study of natural history in the United States. The life-size images of the birds are colorful, artistic, and beautifully detailed. 175 copies were originally printed, but today, just 120 of them have survived intact. Naturalist Lori Sanders found one of them in Massachusetts at Amherst College.
8: Every Monday morning, in the lobby of the Special Collections Department in Amherst College's main library, Marion Walker undoes one lock, then another. She removes the back plate of glass from the display case that she and others in archives call the birdcage. With a gentle pull, she slides out a large tray.
6: This is one of the volumes of the Birds of North America by Audubon. It was given by the Pratt family, and we keep one volume out for a certain amount of time, and once a week we turn a page.
8: The book measures nearly two feet by three feet and is one of the largest books ever printed. Walker leans way over, gently, but firmly grips the page in two places and slowly flips it over paper's rather
6: not, not completely fragile, but we do want to be careful with it.
11: And
8: there we have the prairie starling. Today, we know this specimen by a different common name, red-winged blackbird. On this plate, Audubon has painted the male and female perched on a shrub, the male with his wings arched to show off his red shoulder patches, the female watching him. The image is one of 435 different birds that Audubon painted for Birds of America. Each bird is shown in life-size, So, relative to the size of the paper, these red-winged blackbirds look small. We do have people who
6: show up once a week to see which bird is on display that week. So we have our regulars.
8: But anyone can come here and ask to see all of the Audubon books. The other volumes are stored in a locked vault. They're so heavy and awkward that archivist Peter Nelson says it takes two people to move them onto a cart and roll them down to the reference room to look at.
3: Most of the Audubon Birds of America are just the plates and no letterpress printing. But our copy is the only known copy to have the list of subscribers' names after the title page. And here we see the subscribers' names, about 130 or so of them. At the very top, His Most Gracious Majesty George IV, King of England.
8: Audubon came to the United States from France in the early 1800s as a young man. Sent by his father to avoid being drafted into the Napoleonic Wars. He was a self taught artist and naturalist. Once here, his first job was to oversee a lead mine on some family property near Philadelphia. But Audubon wasn't very interested in doing that, and he wasn't very good at it either. In fact, all of his attempts at later businesses failed too. The main reason is because he was much more interested in being outdoors, exploring, observing, and painting wildlife, especially birds. In 1819, he decided to devote himself entirely to painting and describing all the birds of America.
3: Are you ready for this? I'm ready. Okay, this is the the biggie. Plate one. One of the most popular Audubon plates is the wild turkey. In life size, it fills the entire leaf pretty much within about a half an inch or a quarter of an inch to the edge. Audubon painted his birds... As naturalistically as possible, this was a very big departure from previous naturalists' uh, illustrations of birds and animals.
11: The worst thing that could happen to a bird was to see Audubon come towards it with a shotgun, basically.
8: John Burke is an Audubon scholar and professor of botany at Smith College.
11: He would obviously kill them or buy them dead, but essentially he would wire them up in poses and then paint them. And he had a grid so that he could transfer the body onto the paper life-size.
8: Although the poses Audubon used were sometimes criticized as overly theatrical or even inaccurate, Burke says Audubon's Birds of America was hugely important.
11: First, the illustrations made every bird widely available. Secondly, there was a text, and it is not as well read as it should be. It has sort of a rambling tone to it, and people have objected to various aspects of it. But he described every bird that he knew and gave a great deal of information that certainly is good today.
8: In the process of preparing Birds of America, Audubon discovered new species of birds. He painted several that are now extinct, Carolina parakeet, passenger pigeon, the great auk, heath hen. He was an avid hunter, but he also recognized that certain species were declining because of overhunting and habitat changes. Burke says... As a person, Audubon was driven, adventurous, lively, and outspoken. He was a storyteller who sometimes didn't let the truth get in the way of telling a good story. Burke says if you read his memoirs, you either become angered or intrigued. For Burke, it's the latter.
11: You can look at the birds of America with pleasure again and again. I mean, just leafing through. I'm surprised looking at them, how appealing they are and the drama that's inherent in many of the pictures.
8: Unlike modern field guides, where the birds are grouped together according to their similarities, Audubon organized Birds of America with a repeating pattern, a big bird, then a medium-sized bird, then three smaller ones. Given its layout, Marion Walker never knows week to week which species to expect. She says she could look it up in the index, but the surprise is part of the delight of her Monday morning ritual. Still, she doesn't resist when I ask her to look ahead. Oh my goodness. It's the pelican. It's the brown pelican. For living on earth. I'm Laurie Sanders. <laughs>
1: Coming up, a young Native American looks to the stars and helps land a man on the moon. That's just ahead on Living on Earth.
0: Support for the Environmental Health Desk at Living on Earth comes from the Cedar Tree Foundation. Support also comes from the Richard and Rhoda Goldman Fund for coverage of population and the environment. And from Gilman Ordway for coverage of conservation and environmental change. This is Living on Earth on PRI, Public Radio International.
1: It's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Kellerman. In honor of the nation's favorite feast, we savor the turkey in this
12: week's Bird Note, narrated by Michael Stein. Any farmyard turkey still gobbling on the day after Thanksgiving is a fortunate bird. If that same turkey survives past Christmas dinner, it is a truly lucky fowl. Farmyard turkeys were domesticated from a species called the wild turkey, originally native to the eastern and southwestern states and parts of Mexico. Wild turkey numbers had plummeted by the early 20th century due to overhunting and loss of habitat. Yet fortune would smile on the wild turkey, too. Game managers stepped in, reintroducing wild-caught birds to areas where turkeys had become scarce. From the 1940s onward, there has been an upward trend in wild turkey numbers. In fact, turkeys now run wild in all of the lower 48 states and Hawaii, well beyond their original range. But back to the farmyard turkey... It's likely that the Mayans of southern Mexico had already domesticated turkeys as long as 2,000 years ago. Early Spanish explorers in the New World sailed off with domestic turkeys from Mexico, and soon turkeys were gobbling in farmyards over much of the world. Early European colonists to America's Atlantic seaboard actually brought domestic turkeys with them, completing the circle back to the New World. It's been a long and curious ride for the turkey, showing us both the upside and downside of life as a dinner table delicacy. That's Michael
1: Stein of Bird Note. To see photos of wild turkeys, scratch a path to our website, LOE.org.
9: Three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff.
1: We have a liftoff. 32 minutes. When NASA, the National Aeronautics and Space Administration, was preparing to celebrate its 50th anniversary, it handed storyteller Jay O'Callaghan a mission. Write a love letter to the space agency. Well, it took 18 months, 30 books, 40 interviews, a course in astronomy, and 1,000 pages of emails and transcripts. The result is perhaps the most researched love letter ever written. J. O'Callaghan calls it Forged in the Stars. He told that story last year on Living on Earth, and by popular listener demand, here it is again. J. O'Callaghan with our own Steve Kerwood. So what got you interested in space exploration to begin with?
13: I've grown up with it
1: as much
13: of my generation, but I've also lost a deep interest like much of my generation. And when I got the commission and began to take this this course in astronomy so I can see, I can see Saturn. I talked to a professor at Harvard. He said, I'm so excited we can see the rings of Saturn as clearly as the grooves in a record. Well, it, it kind of let me expand and realize we as the human race are expanding, and we haven't caught up with it. I'm so intrigued that when Armstrong and Aldrin went around the Earth. After landing on the moon, people would run up and they would never say, you did it. We did it. We did it. This sense of, this is humanity's achievement and perhaps it can help pull us together.
6: You get the commission. How do you go about doing the research for this story?
13: NASA was very helpful, my boss, Ed Hoffman. We went down to Houston together and interviews were set up. A lot of interviews with very different people, people responsible for food, people responsible for, uh, the chairs the astronauts sit on, for engineering, so a lot of interviews. And then we're going off to Jet Propulsion Laboratory, and I thought, this is going to be boring. These people are responsible for robots, unmanned space, they were fascinating, they were passionate. That was one of the things that struck me, these people were passionate. Almost every person said, I love working here, I'm so lucky to have this job, I dreamed about this as a kid. Uh, So that passion, uh, I think, helped me become passionate about their work and wanting to tell their story.
6: Well, I understand you're now going to perform an excerpt from Forged in the Stars for us. What are we going to hear?
13: You're going to hear about a young man who had a vision. And I love it that he had a vision because for thousands of years, there's been this vision of... Maybe we could go there. Maybe we could go to the moon, maybe beyond. And this is a five-year-old boy who has a vision, and you'll see in the story he's encouraged. He's not written off, go out and play. He's listened to, and he pursues the vision. In 1948, in a working-class neighborhood in Oklahoma City, a five-year-old boy ran into the kitchen. He said, Mom, I heard a voice. A voice? Yes, it was coming from way up by the sun. It said I was going to have something to do with getting people to the moon. And she said, that's a vision. And she said that because they were Cherokee, Osage. She said, you're going to have to work for the vision. Working meant being good at mathematics and physics. His name was J.C. High Eagle. That was his Cherokee name. His name in the white world was Jerry Elliott. He did well in high school. Then J.C. Heigle, 1961, went to the University of Oklahoma, 18, excited. Physics, mathematics. And he found a lot of students didn't want him there. What's the Indian kid doing here? A lot of professors didn't want him. You're a fine young man, but... See, nature hands out gifts indiscriminately... and your people don't have, oh, the mental wherewithal to... be engineers, scientists, you're wasting your time. He was hurt, but he had the vision and he stayed with it. He did very well. In 1966, J.C. Heigel decided to go to graduate school. Physics, mathematics, but there was no money. Stepfather died, his mother was working... So this young man, J.C. Heigel, went down, this is Norman, Oklahoma, to the police station. I want to be a policeman. They gave him a test. He scored as high as anyone has ever scored. He became a full-time policeman and a deputy sheriff. That meant he could take two courses a semester, 9 o'clock, 10 o'clock was electrical engineering. He wore his uniform with a loaded gun to class, but it was Oklahoma. One day, his mother called and said, There's a telegram. Open it, Mom. It's from the Army. You have to report for your draft physical. He passed. She called again. Another telegram for you. Open it. You got a report to boot camp in 15 days in Vietnam. Call, call your grandfather. J.C. called his grandfather. Wise old man. Called him at his wheat farm. Granddad J.C., went to boot camp, fifteen days. They won't take you. Oh no! I got the piece of paper. I don't believe in paper. They won't take you. I had a hard time getting the calf born last night. <laughs> I had to hitch the tractor up. Granddad, I'm going to boot camp. They won't take you. Let me tell you about last night. <laughs> his granddad went on and on. "'J.C. was furious. Hung up, called his mummy. Didn't listen to me. Said they wouldn't take me. Went on and on about a calf. He's my my father. I'm with him. Chasey was furious. The two people he trusted didn't listen to him. Fifteen days, fourteen, thirteen, twelve, eleven, ten. On the tenth day, there was an angry drunk. He got a backup. They arrested the drunk. And the drunk said to Chasey Heigel, Arrest me. I will kill you. They arrested him. They found out that the drunk had been released from McAllister after serving 30 years for killing a man. The drunk paid his fine. He was off. Nine days, eight days. On the eighth day, a letter came to the police station. The drunk was going to get J.C. Heigel. So J.C. is looking over his shoulder. Seven days, six days. The sixth day he finished class, 11 o'clock, electrical engineering, walked down the corridor, several students are waiting outside the dean's office, and there on the bulletin board, NASA interviewing today. J.C. got in line, said to the student, What do you got? You got to have a NASA application, a government application, and your resume. He won't talk to you if you don't. There's no time to get that. The line melts down. J.C. steps in. The NASA man is packing his briefcase. He looks at this cop. What can I do for you, officer? I want to put people on the moon. He looks at this cop. I'm working my way through graduate school. Well, listen, I got a plane to catch. Write down your phone number there, your name. Don't call us. We'll call you. The NASA man is off. Five days, four days, his mother calls. man, Bernie Goodwin from NASA? He said he talked to you. You would to call him right now. Here's his phone number. He calls. Mr. Goodwin, J.C. Heigl. You're a bright young man. I checked on your record. You're brilliant. You've got fire. We need people like you. In fact, we want you to work for us. Monday morning, Man Space Center, Houston. I can't. Why, the draft? Yes, sir, the draft. Well, you're a policeman. You know possession is nine-tenths of law. You come, we possess you. Who runs the draft there? We have a colonel. Well, we have a general. Our general will talk to your colonel. Monday morning, Man Space Center. Yes, sir! Chasey Heigl goes home, tells his mother, she says, call your grandfather. He calls his grandfather. Granddad, I told you they wouldn't take you. Chasey Heigl gets his guitar, borrows his mom's car, and he heads to Houston. And he's thinking, Granddad must have negotiated a different fate for me with the creator. At 9 o'clock Monday morning, he is hired as an engineer at NASA. A few weeks go by... Chris Kraft, who becomes the famed flight director, comes over with a big cigar, says to J.C., how do you like it here, son? I love it. I love the responsibility. But one thing, sir, what's that? I'm used to reading books to learn what I should. What, what should I read? Son, we don't read books here. We write them. Soon enough, J.C. Heigel is writing the Agena Systems Handbook. J.C. Heigel is an engineer in Flight Control Center for all the Apollo missions astronauts landing on the moon he has achieved his vision and there's a coda Apollo 13 is about to lift off and J.C. Heichel gets another paper, this is for jury duty in Houston he goes down to Houston nobody gets out of jury duty with Judge Singleton there's a pregnant woman saying, your honor I'm pregnant the baby will wait and what's your excuse? It's not an excuse you're on. I am the lead, the lead retrofire officer for Apollo 13. What's a retrofire officer? I calculate the re-entry of the command module. If it's too steep, they burn up. If it's too shallow, they flip off. They do not come back. I don't usually make exceptions. I'll make an exception in this case if you do me a favor. Yes, sir. Bring them back alive. Yes, sir. Apollo 13 lifts off. It goes up and up. It's 200,000 miles up. All is fine. J.C. Heigel finishes his shift in flight control. Senna goes out, gets in his car, turns on the radio. There's been an accident in space. Turns the car around. Runs into Flight Control Center. Men are running around. Some men are crying. Something very serious has happened. They're not sure what. And somebody says, they got to abort. No, said J.C., no, don't abort. He's afraid the engine may be damaged. And if they do a U-turn in the command module, he's afraid the engine won't get them back. He says, no, you've got to slingshot them around the moon. Use the gravity of the moon to help slingshot them back to the Earth. J.C. Heigel helps get people to the moon and helps them get back to Earth. He's achieved his vision. Wow, Jay,
6: that was great. i never heard of J.C. Heigel before. What was he like when you interviewed
13: him? He was very warm and uh, looked very young to me. Of course, he was in his early 20s when he was hired. And he worked 40 years as an engineer there. He was very warm. He was cleaning out his mother's house in Oklahoma City. She had, she had died. And we had a wonderful time together. Uh, he told me the story that I've told you as we were driving downtown. Then we got back. I said, I've got to record this. Tell, tell this again, J.C. And ever since I've been emailing about this detail, that detail, and just recently told me how, how hard it was at the university when people didn't want him. So we've, we've become old friends. So how, how did
6: doing the background research for this story um, and putting it together change your views about space exploration?
13: Changed my views in a number of ways. On February 14th, 1990, Voyager 2 was beyond Pluto and took a photo of our solar system. And in that solar system, Earth is a speck. And I was fascinated that we are so small and so precious. And I, like many of the astronauts, was struck by the fact that we can see Earth from a distance. And perhaps if that sinks down deep into all of us, we'll begin to realize it's finite, it's precious. And we've got to to act to take care of it. So that was a huge change. Another was the beauty, the beauty of the solar system.
6: I understand you've taken your storytelling about NASA. You call it Forged in the Stars. You've taken it on the road, and recently you performed it uh, for the Astronomical Society of the Pacific. You've been out to the Jet Propulsion Laboratory uh, in Pasadena, California. What's been the response to your show?
13: The most exciting response was Jet Propulsion Laboratory because it was the first official. And there was standing room only, and they listened well, and I finished, and then they uh, they stood up. They uh, stood up applauding, and I got to talk to some of them and said, you listen so well. And one woman said, listen, I've been here 30 years, and of course we listen well, we're intelligent, and when something captures us, we listen well, and you told our story, and that that meant the world to me. That's what I want to do. These people are proud of their work, and NASA is not greeted by this culture the way it was in the 60s, and yet the work goes on, and they're proud of what they're doing. Jay
6: O'Callaghan a storyteller based in Massachusetts. His new work is a love letter to NASA, Forged in the Stars. Thanks for joining us, Jay.
13: Thank you so much. I've loved it, Steve.
1: J.O. Callahan with Living on Earth, Steve Kerwood. You can hear the entire live studio performance of Forged in the Stars later in December on your favorite public radio station. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Bobby Bascom, Eileen Balinski, Ingrid Lobet, Helen Palmer, Jessica Lee Smith, Ike Mitra Taj, and Jeff Young, with help from Sarah Hawkins, Sammy Sousa, and Emily Garin. Our interns are Nora Doyle-Burr and Hannah Lyles. Jeff Turton is our technical director. Allison Lirish-Dean composed our themes. You can find this anytime at LOE.org. And while you're online, check out our sister program, Planet Harmony. Planet Harmony welcomes all and pays special attention to stories affecting communities of color. Log on and join the discussion at com, And don't forget to check out our Facebook page, PRI's Living on Earth. Steve Kerwood is Living on Earth's executive producer. I'm Bruce Gellerman. Thanks for listening.
12: Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science, and Stonyfield Farm organic yogurt, and smoothies. Stonyfield pays its farmers not to use artificial growth hormones on their cows. Details at stonyfield.com. Support also comes from you, our listeners. The Ford Foundation, the Town Creek Foundation, the Oak Foundation, supporting coverage of climate change and marine issues, and Pax World Mutual Funds, integrating environmental, social, and governance factors into investment analysis and decision-making.